Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we review an influential work of New Testament scholarship. Today we're going to be discussing Light from the Ancient East by Adolf Deisman, published in 1910. I'm joined today by Chance Bonar from Harvard University. Hi, Chance. Hi, Ian. Hey, I wanted to cut in here really quickly to invite everybody to the New Testament Review after party. We started throwing after parties the night the podcast drops where people can come and ask questions on the YouTube channel and talk to us and ask anything about the episode that they enjoyed or just talk about the New Testament in general. So Laura, myself, and Chance will all be on YouTube tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern Time to discuss uh, Deisman with you. Um, Also, every off week, so this about the middle of the month, on Tuesday night at 8 p.m., we host a non-canonical Bible study where we are reading together one work of extra-canonical Jewish or Christian literature um, and discussing its relevance for understanding the New Testament. So last month we did the Ascension of Isaiah, and this month we'll be doing 3 Corinthians. So come join us to talk about um, these interesting non-canonical texts together on our YouTube channel. If you look for the New Testament review uh, on YouTube, you'll find that we actually have a lot of new video content. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, come check out some videos we've been making to record lectures and just tell people a little bit more about topics we're interested in in the New Testament. And please, while you're there, subscribe. So Chance, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm a PhD candidate at Harvard University uh, in religion, studying New Testament early Christian studies. And I am starting my work on uh, a second century text called The Shepherd of Hermas, uh, kind of looking uh, a little bit at how this text has been interpreted by scholars in the past and how we might reinterpret it in order to say new things about how revelation and salvation were working for Christians in the second century. Great. So we'll definitely have Chance back to do an episode just dedicated to the shepherd, uh, which is a fascinating text that I'm looking forward to talking about. But today's topic is quite different. So this book is looking to what we call documentary papyri, which are writings that survive from the ancient world that aren't formal Uh, literary, crafted, quote-unquote published, problematic word, but we're not talking about that today, published works to ask whether the sorts of texts and language and ways of life evinced in those artifacts can shed light on the writings and social, historical, religious world that the New Testament emerges out of. So part of what Dyson is doing is responding to 18th and 19th century scholars who, uh, for the longest time, were comparing the New Testament to other forms of classical Greek and Roman literature. That, in their own minds, these scholars said, of course, the New Testament is a classic, so it should be compared to the classics. Um, and that's been, uh, especially writing at a time when papyrology was a, a burgeoning field, started asking, what happens if we put the New Testament up against other texts, against texts that we usually would not compare it with? And what happens if we do that? Chance, who was Adolf Deismann? So Adolf Deismann was uh, a professor in Heidelberg and Berlin. Uh, he was born in 1866 and died in 1937. He started his work in New Testament studies by working on the term in Christ or in Christo. He was very interested in this kind of baptismal formula and was struck that Paul used this phrase over a hundred times, but this one noticed that no one else in antiquity was using the preposition in before a name. Mm. Uh, so he wanted to understand where is this coming from, right? So he, he starts looking around at some of the early papyrological findings uh, and inscriptions and trying to 
understand why Paul is using this term. Deichmann is famous for founding the Heidelberg Irano Circle. Um, some other famous people that were part of this circle were um, Albrecht Diedrich, uh, Ernst Trosch, and Max Weber. So he focused a lot on kind of Greek philology and uh, the ecumenical church movement and international peace movements, especially around Europe. Uh, and a little lesser known fact about Deichmann is that he was nominated for two Nobel Peace Prizes, especially for his work in the ecumenical church movement, as well as the um, awareness that he brought to archaeological sites like Ephesus that were kind of in, in disarray. So this book begins by introducing the sources and the finds we have for discussing non-elite, non-literary language in antiquity. Particularly important will be the Oxyrhynchus excavations, which began in the 1890s with Grenfell and Hunt. They found this massive garbage dump in Egypt, and people are still publishing the finds from this, and probably will continue to publish the finds from this um, long after Chance and I are dead. But this is about 10% literary text, so we do occasionally find works of Homer, as well as works of the New Testament in it, but 90% things like contracts, deeds, letters, shopping lists, um, and interestingly, these things are sometimes combined. So the very first fragment of the Gospel of Thomas found was is written on the back of a yet unpublished land deed, which is fascinating. Um, Dyson is also working through kind of other material that we might find, for example, uh, at places that were preserved like Pompeii, right? Pompeii was a city near Naples that was preserved in volcanic ash after Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79. And while he didn't have Pompeii as available to him as later scholars uh, who were kind of working a lot in the 1920s to uncover it, this type of material is the, the what Dyson would have wanted to be used for uh, uncovering the socio-historical makeup of the society that the New Testament texts are being written in. Another source is the Greek magical papyri. Um, and unlike Oxyrhynchus or inscriptions from Pompeii or elsewhere, these don't have a single provenance. This is a collection that scholars have sort of created from magical papyri bought off of the, the market. And these mostly, it seems, have come from Egypt, and they contain all sorts of stuff. So there's a, um, there are lots of spells and spell books and sort of medicinal texts. In addition, there's what's called the Mithras Liturgy, um, which I'm not getting into what that text is. But um, there is sort of a range of quote-unquote pagan, Jewish, and other sorts of popular texts that are being used that are not literature, but rather texts that are being used by people to navigate life with. Another source of material that Deisman makes use of uh, are inscriptions from Asia Minor, um, particularly sites like Hierapolis or Pyrene or Magnesia on the Menander. A lot of this material is being published by uh, 19th century scholars that are uh, making their way around Asia Minor and recording uh, any inscriptions they happen to find sticking out of the ground at various locations. Um, and more systematic excavations happen, especially in the, the early 20th century. Um, but at the time, Deisman is working with what material people have essentially stumbled upon when traversing around Asia Minor. So those are the sorts of sources we have and Deisman has to talk about 
the language and world of the first century, apart, of course, from all of the elite literary texts. So what kind of work does this do for him? I think the payoffs can be broken down into philological insights, literary insights, and historical, cultural, sociological, religious, contextual insights. And we're going to do them in that order. So, philological insights. This section is really interesting. He basically has a numbered list that are a page-ish each, um, and he gives a word and shows that previous scholars had said this word is only found in the New Testament, or sometimes this word is only found in the New Testament and the Septuagint. And there had been lots of previous explanations for where this language was coming from, and we're going to talk about more of that in a bit. But one example is Mark 9.42, where the passage is something like, where if you cause someone to sin, you should have a, it'd be better to have a millstone tied to you and thrown in the sea. Um, there is an adjective modifying the word millstone that we didn't have any other evidence for outside of the New Testament. That is, nobody else ever used this word, um, onikos. Um, and it looks like it's related to the word donkey. So it turns out, if you don't just check literary sources, but go and start digging through contracts and bills of sale, you find this word is not an invention of New Testament writers, unsurprisingly, but rather a popular word, um, a word that was being used in ordinary life. Um, so there is a contract for a loan of a donkey in 33 CE that uses this word. Likewise, there is a reference to somebody selling somebody else a donkey in 70 CE using precisely this word. So that's not a very, like, it's not a very significant insight, but it's an illustration of what Deisman is doing. To give another example, Deisman looks at a term that comes up in Acts 17 uh, during Paul's uh, famous uh, Areopagite speech. And the term here is kat angeleus, which is a proclaimer. Uh, so when Paul's, when this is being used in Acts 17, uh, it's about Paul being a proclaimer of strange gods. And again, this is another term that before Dyspen, scholars assumed was a uh, an explicitly Christian term, a term that Christians invented uh, in the book of Acts and that had not existed elsewhere in the culture, which makes sense given that Christians are interested in messengers and angels. And so, of course, you know, uh, any word that's vaguely related to angelos must be a Christian word. And Dyson goes on to show that there's actually a marble stele from the first century BCE that uses the same term uh, for heralds, heralds of the first games. So Dyson here demonstrates that, again, we have a term that scholars had thought was somewhere within a Jewish-Christian world that actually is part of a much larger Mediterranean context than had been previously realized. So a slightly different example is the word para in Matthew 10. And so this is Jesus is sending out his disciples to go spread the good news. And he tells them not to bring certain things. Don't bring shoes, don't bring a staff, that sort of thing. And in Matthew, one of the things listed is a para, a wallet or a bag of some sort. And the funny thing is Matthew preserves Mark's reference to not bringing purses, not bringing money, and not bringing food. And so... Commentators had previously thought that Matthew's introduction of a wallet or bag here seems awfully redundant. He's already said not to bring money or food, and he's already said not to bring a bag. Now, Deisman's insight is, if we go look at how this word is used in inscriptions and documentary papyri, it will actually change how we read this passage. Uh, there is an inscription 
that a person who identifies themselves as a slave of the Syrian goddess says he was sent on a journey by her. And this journey produced, he boasts, 70 para. And this, Deisman argues, shows what's going on here. This is a special term used in religious contexts to refer to the bag with which somebody would beg for money. Um, that is a bag, uh, we're both Minnesotans, with which someone would beg or ask others for money. And so, in fact, according to Deisman, Matthew is not being redundant by adding this in. Don't bring a bag with which to carry food, don't bring your own money, and also don't bring a bag with which you might beg others for money. Finally, Dyson examines John's I am sayings, the famous sayings, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the door, etc., etc. And Dyson attempts to contextualize these by looking at two other examples. Uh, he looks at an inscription on the tombs of Isis and Osiris, uh, at Nyssa that Diodorus records uh, in the first century with uh, the statements, you know, I am Isis, queen of every land, taught by Hermes. Uh, I'm wife and sister of King Osiris. And along with this, uh, Dyson looks at some magical papyri, particularly papyri that are also using these I statements. I am the headless demon, having eyes in my feet, the strong one, the deathless fire. I am the truth. So when looking at this, Dyson uh, is attempting to demonstrate that, again, even with something as prominent as the Jesus's I am statements in the Gospel of John, this has some relation to how other divine figures are talking about themselves in the first century. On that topic, you must go Google search Prada Thunder Perfect Mind, and you can write to me and thank me for that later. So the next group of payoffs uh, or implications of looking at documentary and other non-literary sources is how we understand the literary status and the language of the New Testament big picture. So not just particular words, but, but the language and the genre of New Testament texts. So one major issue that Dyson is tackling is how to categorize New Testament Greek. Especially in the 19th century, um, there were multiple attempts to do this. Before Dyson, language of the New Testament was often isolated from what was called profane Greek, or common Greek, Koine Greek. And there were a bunch of different terms that were applied to it. Usually it was called something like Biblical Greek, uh, Jewish Greek, Christian Greek, Hebraistic Greek, or Holy Ghost Greek. Um, so it was seen as its own separate category that wasn't the same as Classical Attic Greek, um, but also not the same as the Greek of everyday people. So demonstrating that New Testament Greek is actually Koine Greek. It's the, Greek, the common Greek that's spoken, rather than some separate you know, religiously infused linguistic category. Deichmann goes on to explain how the actual style of New Testament Greek is the style that people are using in everyday documents. He focuses especially on the use of parataxis in New Testament Greek. So these are kind of two different ways of writing in Greek, parataxis and hypotaxis. A hypotaxis often uses um, subordinate clauses um, to make more complex sentences, whereas parataxis often uses the word and, chi, uh, in order to uh, connect sentences. So when examining how New Testament writers are using parataxis, Dyson is trying to demonstrate that, that parataxis is not something that is individual or unique to New Testament writings, uh, and isn't something that's necessarily being picked up from you know, Hebrew texts, 
but rather that this is what kind of everyday documentary material uh, shows us. And it's not completely absurd to have thought that Parataxis was, uh, for lack of a better word, Hebraic, or a result of reading the Septuagint, because Hebrew, this use of the conjunctive vav, Hebrew is very paratactic. You use lots of ands to introduce each sentence, and as a result, the Septuagint is that way. And so people, I think, with some plausibility, thought parataxis must be a result of Jewish Greek. Um, that is, people before Deisman thought this. And literary Greek is very hypotactic. Lots of subordinate clauses which produce really long sentences that have lots of whoms and with whoms in it. One of the interesting things Deisman points out um, that doesn't actually, like, it's not a payoff of looking at documentary papyri is that people who studied literary texts probably should have been suspicious of this already because if you read comedies or you read representations of ordinary poor people in literary texts, these ancient authors actually describe these people speaking paratactically. So a number of speeches written for poor people in antiquity or in ancient literary texts actually employ parataxis. That is, they lots of ands and um, not much subordination. And then, of course, the documentary papyri just confirm this. If you pick up an ancient letter that was written from somebody to their mom, you find that it's largely paratactic. There isn't a lot of sophisticated grammatical hypotactic constructions. So another literary problem that Dexman is dealing with is what he calls the distinction between a letter and an epistle. So for Dexman, uh, a letter is non-literary. Uh, it's a, a way of communicating between people who are separated from one another. He gives letters a bunch of different characteristics. They're usually addressed to a single person or maybe a few people. They're confidential. And they're supposed to represent oral dialogues. Um, in Dyson's approach to letters, he thinks that uh, letters are kind of this very warm and personal connection that you have to someone and that you're expressing what you would have expressed orally via writing. Uh, and he compares this uh, to what he deems epistles, which he thinks are things that look like letters but are actually literary phenomena. And because of that, he kind of depicts them as kind of uh, a little bit... So, and because of being literary phenomena, uh, Dyson depicts epistles as being more distant, more cold, and uh, meant for a general audience rather than for a specific person or people in mind. So we're going to nuance these categories in a second, but it's really easy to find uncontroversial examples of both, right? We have letters from someone who has written to their wife with instructions about housekeeping and antiquity that we just happen to dig up from a garbage dump. At the same time, we have Seneca's moral epistles, which are literary products meant for an indefinite readership, meant to be publicized, shared, and published. So epistles just borrow these sort of this literary conceit of being addressed to someone, but are in fact literary products. So Deisman argues that all of the letters of Paul are letters, not epistles. And he thinks um, lots of the problems in the history of interpretation of Paul comes from people missing, uh, misidentifying this point. Um, in our earlier episodes on Paul, we've talked about the contingency of Paul's letters. And this is exactly what Deisman is talking about. It seems that Paul doesn't expect 
people to be reading these things 2,000 years from now, or even people in neighboring cities necessarily to be reading these letters. He's addressing particular problems in particular places at particular times. And this is, of course, somewhat debated, um, particularly with regard to Romans. There is some debate over whether or not Romans was intended for a wider readership. And some people have argued that Paul actually, you know, by adding Romans 16, Paul himself may have distributed this text more widely. But the distinction itself is worth making. And we're going to do future episodes on the contingency debates with regard to Rem Romans um, so you can wait for those. Deisman doesn't at all address the whole pseudepigrapha problem. And this, to different degrees, depending on how you think or talk about pseudepigrapha, may present issues for his categorization. But I think it still gets at something useful. Like, you can imagine there is a difference worth talking about between a letter dug up at Oxyrhynchus and Seneca's moral epistles. One example Deisman gives uh, to demonstrate that Paul's letters are indeed letters and not epistles is a letter from Papas of Hermopolis to Flavius uh, Abeneus uh, in Fayum in Egypt. Um, so this letter he compares to Paul's letter to Philemon. So Deisman uses this letter uh, to demonstrate that Paul's letter to Philemon is an epistle uh, based on the similar content of these letters. Um, here, uh, Papas is writing to another person to ask for uh, an enslaved person to be pardoned for fleeing from uh, their enslaver. Uh, and Desmond here uses this to demonstrate that that Paul's letter to Philemon uh, is doing the same type of work for Onesimus. Yeah, the similarities there are uncanny. The letter is a roughly the same length and addressing the exact same situation and actually makes some of the same rhetorical moves about, like, I'm coming to visit you shortly, and things like that. On the other side, James is probably the clearest instance of an epistle in the New Testament. This text has basically none of the formal characteristics of a letter. Um, there's not addressing any particular situation, as far as, you know, Deisman can tell. It just has this initial address, and the initial address is to Israel in the diaspora. This, on Deisman's schema is an epistle. Similarly, Second Peter and Jude have only the barest epistolary frames and are essentially treatises not addressing a particular situation. So, of course, Dyson's categories of letter and epistle have been well used and also problematized over the last century. And one of the most significant problems for the category is that Dyson doesn't deal with the issue of pseudepigrapha or things that are falsely ascribed to certain writers. And pseudepigrapha complicates his categories because as Bardemann has demonstrated uh, in his recent work, one of the most convincing ways that forgers write in the name of someone else is by constructing historical circumstances around which uh, or to which the letter is responding. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, if, if someone is reading a pseudepigraphic letter, they might think it's a letter in Dyson's terminology because it seems like it's written to a certain audience with a certain historical circumstance. Uh, and yet, Dyson can't account for this in his paradigm. Right. Right. These are supposed to be formal categories for Dyson. That is, they describe, you know, the use of language and the situation and the content. But pseudepigraphal letters, like the pastoral epistles, are adding in the stuff that is particular to letters in order to get them acceptance as functionally epistles. So this, like... This is a big problem. It's borrowing from one category in order to accomplish the other category because in the reception of Paul's epistles, which 
on Dysman's account are letters, and I think he's right about that. They're radically contingent. Um, these letters have been received as epistles, and so to accomplish that same thing, later forgers are appropriating features of one category to accomplish the reception of the other, and so things get weird. Exactly. Um, and also, Dysman's categories uh, of letter and epistle only take into account what's happening at the stage of composition uh, and not so much about reception. Uh, so Dysman's letter and epistle distinction doesn't take into account how something might at first be a letter written to an individual with it and historical circumstance, and later it kind of becomes a more generalizable uh, epistle. Right. Another fun example is the same text can be composed or authored multiple times, um, by which I mean a person can take a letter they have written as a letter to one individual for a specific circumstance and decide to publish this as part of a collection that is now epistolary. And so you have one and the same author republishing their own work for a different function. And I, I don't think it's so much like means we can't use that distinction at all, at least this particular case doesn't, but it is interesting that, that one text can be both in different situations, and so you need to make distinctions in what you are interested in and what you are talking about when you refer to a text being something or another. Okay, so that's uh, philological payoffs and literary payoffs. Um, the third implication or set of payoffs for looking at Document Papyri, according to Deisman, are the historical, cultural, sociological, religious context it provides for the New Testament and the development of early Christianity. There is this myth of disenchantment that existed in Deisman's time that pagans in the first and second centuries were losing faith, losing attachment to the traditional cults, and were looking for something new that material conditions and general skepticism towards traditional religion created this breeding ground for Christianity to take advantage of. And this is grounded in basically literary elite literature complaining about societal decline. Um, that is, authors in the first, second century talk about how nobody cares about the temple anymore. Nobody cares about the cult. The youths are all off. Uh, on their iPhones, that sort of thing. And also from the later polemic of Christian authors talking about how morally degraded and impious pagans were when Christianity emerged. The problem is, like, people have been talking that way forever, um, and there is no reason to believe that just because Clement says everyone was losing faith in the traditional gods, that people, in fact, were losing faith in the traditional gods. Clement has lots of reasons, lots of ulterior reasons to say that. And Deisman looks to, again, popular documents and inscriptions to show that there really is no evidence for this widespread disenchantment with the traditional cultists. Um, we find in these troves, these garbage dumps, and these ruins of cities, oracles votive offerings to the gods, thankful accounts for miracles gods have worked on your behalf, spells, amulets, letters that are colored with religious language and talk of the gods. We find 
potsherds that have receipts of offerings to temples, collections for the goddesses, religious festivals, and discussions of attending these things. And there is tons and tons of evidence in the written remains of ordinary life um, that piety in the first and second century was not, in fact, waning, but was as fervent as ever. Uh, another aspect of historical and cultural context that Dyson emphasizes is when we start having texts by Christians, uh, and this becomes a large question for 20th century scholarship, Dyson's kind of at the forefront of this. Dyson turns especially to what he deems the oldest autograph letter by the hand of a Christian, a text uh, written from a Roman Christian to uh, some Christians in the Arsinoite Dome in Egypt probably sometime uh, between 260 and 280, and the, the letter itself is uh, essentially a transaction of corn and barley uh, that happens, uh, and as well as kind of explaining how payment is supposed to get to Alexandria, and it mentions Pope Maximus, which is part of why Grenfell and Hunt, who found this, uh, found this letter, were able to date it. For Dyson, this is uh, an important moment because Outside of documentary papyri, documentary material, uh, we had very few texts written in the hand of Christians from uh, we were, what we would call the early Christian period. A lot of our material is later. Uh, so before papyrological discoveries, uh, only a few documents could be dated to the early Christian period. Uh, and so this is an important moment for Dyson to demonstrate that we could have Christians writing in their own hand in antiquity uh, that we're able to examine. And of course, a century later, this has been updated. As, as far as we know, the earliest uh, letter written by a Christian now is P. Basil 243, which is probably dated to the 230s CE. A third subcategory of this kind of payoff is the language used for Jesus and God in the New Testament. That is, Lord language, kurios, savior language, soter, Previous scholarship, and in fact some scholarship today, talks about this as if this is distinctively Septuagintal. The Tetragrammaton, the name, the proper name of God in the Hebrew Bible, is translated in the Septuagint as Kurios, Lord. Also, the word Kurios shows up um, in literary texts referring to the divinities and, and god-kings of the Near East. So previous scholarship had thought of this application of the language Lord to Jesus was either drawing so on something uniquely Old Testament-y or um, employing this sort of <laughs> Eastern language for divinities. Exactly. Uh, and Benjamin responds to this understanding of Kurios and Soter by demonstrating that if we look at uh, certain letters and inscriptions from antiquity, we actually see that this is also a common term in Roman circles. Uh, so perhaps most famous is the Priene inscription, which is a text discussing uh, the birthday of Augustus, Augustus Caesar, that uses these terms for Augustus. So Augustus is called Lord Curios, he's called Savior, Soter, and also it's discussing how the birth of Augustus uh, brings about the good news, the Evangelion, uh, for for the Roman people. With these inscriptions, Augustus is trying to demonstrate that he is the one who is bringing peace to the Roman world, the Roman Empire. And this becomes extremely relevant for New Testament scholars who 
would start comparing this inscription to birth narrative in Luke, where we also have uh, a lot of this language of, you know, a king and the Lord being born, and that this, this Lord is bringing good news to all people. But besides this most famous example, we see lots of other discussions of Nero or other emperors using the word Lord. And also we find that um, across the Mediterranean world, uh, the word Lord, Kyrios, is used to describe a variety of divine figures in general. This doesn't mean this word is do not doing any Septuagintal work in the New Testament. But it does mean that the mere use of this word isn't evidence of that. You need to make some other contextual argument, like, for instance, it being part of a larger quotation, to make that case. Right, and I think this is part of Dyson's entire agenda with this work, is to demonstrate that, especially scholars before him in the 19th century, were too quick to assume that everything was Hebraic, everything was Oriental. Yeah. He's saying we have to recognize that things are a little bit more complicated than that. Right. So that's not everything, of course, that Deisman does, but I think that's a fair representation of the kinds of arguments Deisman is making and the emphasis he wants to put on non-literary texts being useful for studying the New Testament. Let's now look at the reception of this book in New Testament scholarship. So obviously this has had a massive effect on lexicography. We're going to set that aside. One huge influence Deisman had was on the scholars that we would come later to call the form critics. So this is Carl Ludwig Schmidt, uh, Martin Debelius, and Rudolf Boltmann. They picked up Deisman and some other studies on orality and said, look, the New Testament isn't literary. Early Christians weren't interested in writing. They were an oral culture, a culture that talked to each other. And what we have in terms of writing is just sort of artifacts, accidents produced from that. So the Gospels are not biographies by any means. They're not, they're not conscious imitations of Jewish scripture. They are the sort of folk literature that people have gathered up oral traditions and collected them, and these, are, these things have crystallized in the forms of the synoptic Gospels. Paul's letters are not literary epistles. They are, um, like Deisman said, um, one half of an a conversation that could have been oral, so there's nothing distinctively literary written about them. And this created a whole new way of approaching New Testament studies that we're going to talk about in a whole subsequent series of episodes on the form critics and their reception, as well as Harry Gamble and other responses to this. Gamble's re-emphasis of the importance of Jewish scripture the uh, developments of narrative criticism, redaction criticism, and genre theory, I think, have gone a long way in undermining the form-critical reception of Deisman. And if I'm doing this mile-high flyover, um, it might be worth noting that if um, the form critics are thesis and uh, gamble and narrative critics are antithesis, someone like Loveday Alexander is synthesis, where she is showing that Luke both takes on the language, the workaday language of first century Greek, and is also participating in current literary forms. And you can go back and listen to our episode on her, that's episode 17, to see what I'm talking about. But that's just a whole trajectory and, you know, competing trajectories of reception of Deisman. A reception of Deisman's emphasis on the New Testament being non-literary. Another more recent reception of Dyson can be found in uh, the work of Giovanni Vassana, professor at Harvard, who has done work on particularly the 
scribes who may have produced the hypothetical document Q and how they are kind of related to the larger Greco-Roman context around them. So one smaller example of that type of work of kind of following Deisman's urge uh, to look at documentary material, Bassana not only looks at uh, kind of other uh, early Christian material like the Acts of Philip or the Acts of Peter of the Twelve Apostles, which is in the Nakhlati Codices, uh, but also starts looking at documentary papyri. For example, Bassana does this examination of doctors' incomes in antiquities. Usually they would make somewhere between one to 3,000 denarii. We learn from docu- documentary texts that doctors were exempt from public liturgy, but that this had consequences, and that by the 2nd century CE, towns were legally limiting the number of doctors that could work in the town and that could be kind of itinerant doctors coming in and out of towns to uh, heal people. So folk healers were being kind of suppressed in some ways. Batana's research on how Christian missionaries in the first few centuries are portraying themselves as physicians can be nuanced by understanding how doctors and folk healers, especially those who are traveling from town to town, are being treated, whether they're being you know, kicked out and they have to just dust off their feet as they walk away from the town, or whether they're being accepted and allowed to perform their healing work in town. And one cannot talk about Oxyrhynchus letters and the lives of ordinary Christians in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century and not discuss Anne-Marie Leyendyke. Leyendyke is a professor at Princeton University, and she has written a number of things on the sorts of non-literary remains of Christianity from antiquity, and in particular, Oxyrhynchus. So she has a monograph called Greetings in the Lord, which is sort of narrative paparology, um, might be a way of describing it. She is giving a rich contextualization of letters Christians wrote back and forth. She's also written on quote-unquote garbology. How do we explain the fact that uh, fragments of the Bible end up in these garbage dumps? And we have a Homeric papyrus that was used as toilet paper. How does this happen? What does this tell us about the way people used and abused and disposed of their books? I think another thing that Landek helps us think through, especially in kind of her reception of Deisman's focus on documentary material, is that as, as little material as we have to study the ancient world, there are times that we can do something that's almost micro-history, mm-hmm. that we're able to examine individual figures and start to build biographies of figures that are kind of outside of the traditional literary traditions. So a good example of this would be uh, in her work, Greetings in the Lord, she focuses on Bishop Sodas and helps us understand kind of a little bit about Sodas' life in Oxyrhynchus. A very recent attempt to follow Dyson's trajectory is a commentary series started by Peter Artsgrabner. So this series is called the Papyrologische Kommentare. Uh, this is a commentary series that is probably, it's a few volumes in, so they're mostly focused on uh, Pauline material so far. This commentary series that is explicitly building off uh, Deisman's understanding of the importance of documentary papyri. The main question that this pathological commentary asks is, how would the average reader of that time understand a text that they're hearing? So this commentary series attempts to limit pathological material that's being used to examine Paul's letters. So it says, you know, if you're looking at a first century text like Paul's, let's look at everything we can in the pathological world from 
200 BC to 200 CE mm-hmm. and limit ourselves to that so that we don't, you know, get distracted comparing comparing Paul to Euripides or Thucydides or Herodotus uh, or Plato, which all certainly are, you know, um, things that Paul can be talked about with and compared to, but to ask, you know, if, would would your everyday person know all of these narratives and have all of this in mind when they're hearing Paul's text, uh, or would they have, you know, documentary materials that would be passing through their hands occasionally uh, more readily on their mind? Okay, thanks, Chance, so much. Great to have you back. Yeah, thank you, Ian.